Well, this morning, I think we've been having some gremlins visit us as we're missing a screen. Uh, and uh, I've been hearing a little popping going on over there. And unless that's Ron Kellum's making that sound with his mouth, uh, we may be having, I may lose my microphone partway through and then I'll just yell real loud. <laughs> I hope you can tell the difference. Now, I know what you're saying to yourself. You're saying to yourself, self, it looks like John is wearing different glasses. The fact of the matter is, I am wearing different glasses. Uh, these are readers, and it seems as though I have aged out of the reader portion of my progressive bifocals, or whatever those things are called. And, uh, and I'm consulting with an eye doctor to get that fixed in the meantime, if I'm going to be able to actually have anything to say, then I'm going to need these readers in order to say it. So, I'm going to start out simply by reading the passage of Scripture. Now, we're going to go back and pick this up again, but I want to read the, just ten verses out of that whole Passage. I had, uh, I think in the bulletin it says from 6 to 27. I'm just going to read 10 verses of that because the 10 verses is going to be the 10 that's going to occupy our attention here for the next uh, hour and 17 minutes. Just kidding. Just kidding. It'll be an hour and a half. On their return. Uh, beginning at verse 10 of Luke chapter 9, on their return, the apostles told them all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is a word, it's a Hebrew word, two Hebrew words, as a matter of fact, pushed together, uh, and it means house of hunter, the house of the hunters. Now, they didn't hunt animals, they hunt fish, because this was at the Sea of Galilee, and that's how Bethsaida got its name. These were fish hunters that uh, that lived right there in the Sea of Galilee. And, and, uh, and Jesus took his disciples and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida, the house of hunters. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provision, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we were going to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to his disciples, and set, before the, set them before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now, it 
it happened that as they were praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has written, risen. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. We'll go back and pick those up. But I wanted to give you that the broader context as we get ready to to look into these verses. Because in that passage of Scripture that we just read, there are three separate stories. And we're going to talk about that. But we've been reviewing. Wait a minute, one second before I get to that. Is Sue Morgan here today? That's the good thing about these glasses. I can't see anybody. (laughs) There's Sue. Okay. I wanted to, to mention, just in passing, because we did recognize birthdays, that Sue Morgan's having a birthday. This is her 39th birthday. And what I'm not going to tell you is how many times she has celebrated that 39th birthday. <laughs> but I just wanted to say happy birthday to Sue. Okay. All right. All right. Um, we, we've been reviewing our vision, our mission, and values as a church, and we've observed. And incidentally, there is biblical precedent for doing this. If you go into the book of Nehemiah, you find that Nehemiah, has, uh, he, he states his mission to, to the people, and then he states it again, and then he states it again. So Nehemiah it was involved in heavy strategic planning, and he was also a very good communicator of his vision and mission. So the people of Israel always knew what they were about. And that's our intent here, that we know what we are about as a church. And so we've been reviewing our, our vision, our mission and values as a church. And we've observed that down the road, we want people to say, when they look at Bay Presbyterian Church, we want folks to say, now there is a congregation giving, given to loving and worshiping God and loving and serving their neighbors. That would be the reputation that I would long for us to have in this community. I think that we're most of the way there, at least of those who know we exist. We then said the way in which we will inculcate and propagate this mission or this vision is to accomplish our mission, which is to teach, to build, and to equip. We'll teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Patrick told us last week, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just good advice. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. And we will build people up in their faith and we will equip them to serve their neighbors by meeting physical and spiritual needs. That is our mission. And as we accomplish our mission, so we will accomplish our vision. And you can get an idea of what that means by looking at our prayer sheet at the third tranche, that third bottom section, and see some of our neighbors and some of the, the physical and spiritual needs that we're seeking to to uh, to meet, we we support college ministry. This is this has been uh, an interesting thing for us. But um, we, we I, I saw Jason come in over here, and uh, Jason is a student at FGCU, and uh, we we've, we picked up several of the FGCU students along the way. But before that, Dave and Cheryl Tanner were uh, nice enough to. 
uh, have Lucas Tanner as a son, and we brought Lucas in to, to do the college ministry at FGCU. And so Lucas Tanner is full-time at FGCU as, uh, as the college pastor out there. And then um, Bob and Renee Knuth have a son. They're probably watching right now. Hi, Bob and Renee. Uh, their son, Robert, is uh, with that same organization at the University of Michigan. A matter of fact, I am going to probably uh, be preaching to Robert and his, and his wife, uh, who are in Leland, Michigan. Next week, I am going to be in Leland, Michigan. Carrie and I will be there enjoying this environment. I will be there preaching. And uh, I'm told that Robert and his wife will be there in uh, Leland at the same time. And I'll have the opportunity to see him. But they also are in college ministry. And then um, Billy and Marcia Spink, many of you remember Billy and Marcia. Billy and Marcia had a daughter, have a daughter, Kristen Thompson, who is with that same college ministry organization at Washington University in St. Louis. And so we, we've been supportive of, of college ministry. We like college ministry. We like to be able to, to speak into the lives of the people who will be leaders of our world in, um, in years to come. We, we help with a Cafe of Life, and I know many of you are also involved with a Cafe of Life, and we, we have quite literally sent tons, tons of food uh, to the Cafe of Life. That is not, uh, that's not a, a, a metaphor. That's literally tons of food we have sent to the Cafe of Life to help in their distribution. We, we help New Horizons. Um, we help um, people who are considered at-risk students, um, largely um, Hispanic, the Latinos, and we help them assimilate into our culture by having tutoring programs and by teaching them scripture and scripture songs. And we help with that good ministry called New Horizons. We help with a Florida church planting network. Uh, right now, our Florida church planting network has uh, and Jack Story's probably watching. He's on their staff. And Jack, I think we have 11 churches. You'll, why, don't you, you, why don't you text me if I'm wrong on that? I'll put my phone right here. <laughs> and you can check me on that, Jack. Uh, uh, we have 11 churches, I believe, that we're starting around the state. And we are, um, we are the people who brought it to southwest Florida here at Bay Presbyterian Church. And then uh, the Pregnancy Resource Center. We, we have been strong supporters of the Pregnancy Resource Center. You know, 60%, maybe even more than that, uh, of the girls that we help at the Pregnancy Resource Center fall below the poverty line. And the niche that we, that we occupy, and, and Nancy Diller was a founder and was an early chairman of the board of the Pregnancy Resource Center, but um, that organization helps these, uh, these girls who are below the poverty line as they enter into crisis pregnancy situations, and they, and they help out. And those are the things that we're involved in. These are our neighbors. These are the areas that we have staked out as our neighbors. You know, the, 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 the man came to Jesus and said, well, who is my neighbor? They're looking for that loophole. Well, these are our neighbors, 
and, and the people that live out here. Those are our neighbors. The people that live over here are our neighbors. The people who live around you are our neighbors. And as Presbyterians, we look at the biblical basis for everything. I will tell you that Presbyterians are proudly and annoyingly biblical. We're always looking for a biblical rationale for what we're doing. So when Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, a church that he uh, founded himself and with whom he spent more time than any other church that we know of in the Bible, he wrote this. And Rachel read it to you earlier. I want to emphasize two verses. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, um, in days of yore, uh, there was a, a sharp distinction between the clergy and the laity, between the professional pastoral class and before uh, and between everybody else. And uh, Martin Luther came along and he said, you know what, that is an artificial separation. And, uh, and Martin Luther came up with the idea that there should be a priesthood of all believers. And we think of it this way. Every member a minister. Every member a minister. Because the apostle says that it is the role of the apostles, the prophets, the shepherds, the, uh, and the teachers, the evangelists, to equip the saints. You are saints. You might not have known that. They say, well, that, that person is a saint. Bible says that you're a saint. Every one of you here, you're saints. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saints. The saint is a word that simply means a holy one. And you are today holy ones if you believe in Jesus Christ. Not on the strength of your own personal achievements, but because you are united with Christ by faith. And so you, in that regard, are holy. And God sees you through the lenses of holiness, which means you are saints. And that means that every member is a minister here today. That's what Paul did as the preeminent leader of the church. He equipped the people to lead the church and to build up the body. Why? Because the intent was for the church to be here in perpetuity, the church as an organization. Now, let, let me make another distinction for you here today. Boy, this might be an hour and 17 minutes. <laughs> Did you bring your lunches? <laughs> I'm going to make another distinction here today because we think of this, this thing as, as being the church. And I suppose in one sense it is. When we were starting churches, when we were in the early days, when, uh, when I was just starting churches, we said that the church is not the building, it's the people. But you need the building to put the people in to tell them that the church is not the building, but the people. This is a building, so we might say that this is a church, but this is a church. Uh, this is 
the Bay Presbyterian Church. This is our organization of the larger church, capital C, uh, of all believers, because the church, the, the word church is two Greek words put together, ecclesia. You've heard of ecclesiastical. That's where that word comes from, and it simply means the called out ones. And today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called out. You're called out of the world. You're called into the church of Jesus Christ. You're part of the ecclesia of the church. And uh, that, that organization that is the church is to be here in perpetuity. As long as the church, capital C, is here, the church, little c, is to be here. It wasn't just for Paul's convenience that he started churches. And, and you can back that up a generation because Jesus came to be the atoning sacrifice for every one of his own people. The, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. That was his first purpose. His life, death, and resurrection was the fulfillment and culmination of the Torah, the Old Testament. You see, Jesus is presented in the Old Testament as the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3. He was payment in full for the failure of Abraham's covenant in Genesis 15. He was Jacob's ladder connecting earth to heaven in Genesis 28. He was the cleft in the rock in which we uh, may stand and safely observe the presence of the glory of a holy God. He was the rock who, the, who Moses struck in the wilderness that produced water. He was the sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, and he was the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus is throughout the Bible, old and new. But he, Jesus, was also more than that. Jesus was the progenitor, the first of the new covenant, and his intention while on this planet was not only to atone for sin, but also to establish his church, to establish worship in the new covenant administration of this covenant of grace. And so Jesus was all about equipping during his early life so that that church might be firmly established and that it might go on. This morning, I want to point out to you a page, those ten short verses that we read, that will speak to the equipping ministry of Jesus. And that passage that we read is in Luke chapter 9, and we're going to make the case that being a follower of Jesus was, a, was to be in the equipping classroom, to be in the laboratory of equipping, and to understand his equipping ministry, both in the Bible and in your everyday life, you must treasure up the pieces of your life. And treat them as though they're part of a larger puzzle. We're sort of bringing to the fore the metaphor of a jigsaw puzzle. And, and, and someone has been at work and has produced a border for us. You know how you always get that straight edge first, right? You always get that border. Sometimes... You're missing a piece. Doggone it, I must have dropped it somewhere. But I, I like that idea conveyed by the 
the treasuring up. Just, just think of, of Mary. Mary had just given birth to the Savior, and shepherds came to Bethlehem and, and found the baby Jesus and told a fantastic story of angels appearing. And an angel spoke with them, and an army of angels together proclaimed glory to God in the highest. And Luke said in Luke 2.19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And I like that idea of treasuring and pondering. I was talking to Howard before the service, and we were talking about meditation. And, and we were talking about the differences between Eastern meditation and biblical meditation. Then there's a place for biblical meditation. It's not the same as Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation, you empty your mind. In biblical meditation, you fill your mind with the Bible, and you roll these things around in your mind. And, and that's what Mary did. She filled her mind with these things that the, that the shepherds told her are the purposes of God. And she pondered them in her heart. Christian meditation. So I like the language of treasuring and pondering, especially because we don't know the things that God knows. And as, as situations come into our life, we need to treasure those and ponder them. We think we know. We think we understand God's purposes. And so we make value judgments on different uh, events that come into our life. But the truth is, we only know the barest of minimums concerning the intricacies of God's plan for human history or even our own past and our way forward. So being a follower... And being in the equipping laboratory of Jesus is treasuring up the pieces of a larger puzzle. In the scripture text today, there are, as we said, three stories that unfold. And they're strung together. Uh, in the Bible, randomness was never a methodology of communicating and a poor equipping technique. So when Jesus put three particular stories together, there was intent. There was intent. And Luke strung those together. Jesus, in giving us a Bible, gave us these stories strung together. And I'm going to suggest to you that the larger pieces of God's ultimate plan are here unfolded as restoration, redemption, and reconciliation. And all three are affirmed and advanced by the smaller pieces of your life. And so I want us to take a look at those three things. They're in your outline, which are in your bulletin. And the first is restoration, the purview of a king. I want to point out something uh, in the equipping lab that's easy to overlook. Someone needs to set that clock back about 20 minutes. Um, here's the piece that's easy to overlook. It's right in, the, in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 10, right at the first of that section. It says, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them. He took them. That's easy to overlook. But Jesus took them and withdrew apart 
to a town called Bethsaida. In the equipping lab, Jesus listened to all the apostles had told him regarding their ministry in the surrounding regions. And he took them. That's how Jesus taught. That's how Jesus equipped. He took his disciples. Uh, Howard Hendricks put it this way. He says, more is caught than is taught. And I think there's truth in that, that Jesus, Jesus gave him not just, gave his disciples not just words, but his very life. And he took them with him so they could observe him in action. That was the way in which Jesus was equipping those apostles. The apostles had been sent out. It was a training run that they had been sent out on. And the apostles had been sent with power and authority to cast out demons, cure diseases, and proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. All of which was restorative work. Remember, this first story is about restoration. The Garden of Eden had no diseases. It had no defects. It had no demon possession. The fact that it existed in the days of the apostles, that is the disease, the, the defects, the demon possession, the fact that those things existed in the days of the apostles was a product of and a consequence of the initiation of sin and rebellion in the world. It happened in the garden. But shortly after sin came, a promise from God also came. A promise of restoration was on its way. But it would come, and it would come with a price. But it would most assuredly come. That was the flat edge, the border of the puzzle being put together. Adam and Eve really didn't know uh, what all of that meant. They didn't really understand the full meaning of, of the restoration that God had promised. They just knew that a loving and kind God was promising restoration of this creation that they had messed up with their sin and rebellion. They knew that the price of whatever restoration was to come would be the bruised heel to the promised one. The prize would be the destruction of the temper, the tempter and his evil deeds. Now, as this jigsaw puzzle of life was being put together, a king would come along and he would discover God's promising. That restoration would come under the rule of that man's descendant. The king that he told that to was King David. And his descendant, well, the puzzle showed that there were two descendants. The first one was Solomon. But Solomon was eminently imperfect, and he had feet of clay. Solomon was pointing ahead to a perfect king who taught about a kingdom and who would do works of restoration, healing. Ultimately, that too would point forward to the day when Jesus' kingdom would come in fullness upon his return and God would restore all things once for all. And we read about this restoration in those first two verses of our text. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. 
And when the crowds learned it, they followed him and welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Every act of healing in the Bible is an act of restoration when God is restoring the creation to the time when, when there was no sickness and the time when there will be no more sickness. But in this three-part story, there's also a story of redemption at the hands of a priest. See, this is another one of the straight edges on that jigsaw puzzle. Redemption was not a new concept when Moses came on the scene. Now, now this, this passage, if you'll notice, that doesn't say anything about Moses in here. I couldn't, see, I couldn't see anything about Moses. But you know what? Luke is careful to tell us that this takes place in a desolate place, in a wilderness. And that he had an overwhelming number of people who were hungry and wanted bread. That sounds to me like Moses in the wilderness. It sounds to me like Luke is making an allusion from the Old Testament to the New. So redemption was not a new concept when Moses came on the scene. But his experiences certainly provided detail in the puzzle. You see, Moses, under his leadership, Israel was redeemed from Egypt's slavery. And Moses was its chief priest. Moses appealed to God for food to feed masses of people, and God gave them bread from heaven. It was called manna, but it was bread from heaven. Jesus said as much. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, your fathers ate bread in the desert. In today's text, Jesus had been teaching throngs of people about the kingdom of God. And as evening approached, uh, as approached the apostles, who at this point in time were really operational functionaries, they were kind of interns uh, of Jesus, who was the real chief priest. And those disciples observed that their resources were nowhere near what it would be required if the responsibility for dinner fell to them. They encouraged Jesus to send them to surrounding villages for food and shelter for the night. And the disciples' worst nightmare came upon them. And, and you can imagine this. This is kind of like being in the classroom. Remember when you were unprepared in the classroom? I assume that many of you were like me, <laughs> unprepared in the classroom. And you're, you're looking at the clock like I'm looking at this one. And that second hand keep oh. There's only 20 more seconds. I hope she doesn't call on me. I hope she doesn't call on me. Ten seconds. John? Oh! They got me. But I think that's kind of the way the disciples were. They saw these 10,000 people. They're all hungry. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, I hope he doesn't call on us to feed them. <laughs> I hope he sends them into the town. Tell them. And he, they even said that. He, 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 they said to him, they said to Jesus, the intern said to the boss, send the crowd away and go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we're here in a desolate place. That's what the disciples were thinking. But this was the equipping, the equipping lab. So uh, throngs of people 
uh, had been there, and Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of God and of ultimate restoration. And as evening approached, the apostles, who were the functionaries uh, of, of the real chief priests, the disciples observed the resources were nowhere near what would be required if the responsibility for dinner fell to them. They encouraged Jesus to send them into the surrounding villages for food and shelter, and their worst nightmare happened when Jesus said, You! Give them something to eat. They said, Jesus, you send them away. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Jesus was giving them a taste of responsibility beyond their means of fulfilling. What do you think it must have been like to be Moses and have a couple of million mouths to feed? That's a lot of responsibility. But God supplied for Moses and God would supply for the disciples. Now, I have no idea, maybe you have some thoughts on this, but I have no idea of how it worked that Jesus would take two fish, five loaves, and feed 10,000 people. Well, I mean, what was the process by, by which that happened? He had a basket, it, and he just kept, in, did he keep on pulling out fresh loaves or, or pieces off the same loaf? And it would be like the burning bush, like Moses' burning bush. It was, they were, he was pulling pieces off, but it wasn't consumed. In the end, Jesus wanted the disciples to know that God met their material needs. He was equipping the disciples for future ministry. What he said before, take no provisions. That's what he told them when he sent them out. Take no provisions. How are we going to live if we don't have anything to eat? Well, what he was teaching them was, that taking no provisions would not be a threat to their well-being. And when the disciples gathered the leftovers, they each had a basket to sustain them. And we read about this in, in Luke chapter 9, verses 12 through 17. Now the, began, the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Jesus, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provision, for we are here in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there are about 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. The bread that sustained redemption in the wilderness, the bread from heaven, was now sustaining redemption in still another desolate place. The Son of Man, the Lamb of God, providing bread from heaven in a desolate place, still more detail on the interior of the jigsaw puzzle of life. Finally, there's a third story in the last three verses, and that's about reconciliation, the pronouncement of a prophet. Jesus had just finished a speech not recorded by Luke, but excerpted by John in his gospel. It was a very direct speech that he made, and it was not intended for broad appeal. In fact, after the speech, 
that Jesus made. John says in John 6, verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus had tens of thousands of people following him. Why why don't you just build on that? Come on, Jesus, let's let's get 20,000 next time. No, he told them the truth. And many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. But in Luke's abbreviated version of the speech, Jesus asks the question at the conclusion of that. Who do people say that I am? And he followed that up by asking, who do you say that I am? And Peter hits the ball out of the park. You are the Christ of God. What was Peter saying by this? Well, even though this was recorded in the Greek language, the actual conversation was likely in Hebrew or Aramaic, which was the the language of the Jews of the day. Uh, Aramaic is a close cousin to Hebrew, in which case he would have said, HaMashiach Elohim, the Messiah of God. That filled in some of the middle of the puzzle. The edge, the border was provided 700 years before when Isaiah talked about this Messiah that Jesus is, uh, is himself. And this is, what, this is what Isaiah said, and this really fills in all the border around the puzzle. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form of majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. Some historians believe that crucifixion wasn't invented until 100 years after this was written. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All of we, like sheep, have gone astray, each one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah was building for us the borders of that jigsaw puzzle of life the messiah was coming and when he came he would come for reconciliation charles wesley with an assist from george whitfield wrote about it he said hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king peace on earth and mercy mild god and sinners reconciled yeah this began to fill in the puzzle the big picture was advanced but there's so much more because your life and my life are inside the borders of that puzzle and every day it becomes more complete okay 
for those of you who don't start listening until the takeaway comes, start listening. See, the takeaway of this is embedded in the third point, the point of reconciliation. This passage in Isaiah 53 was treasured up by observant Jews for 700 years. And, and they pondered it. And then Jesus appeared. And those Jews took the long view of life, that life is part of a puzzle and the pieces are to be treasured and pondered to see how they might fit into the larger whole. Our first takeaway is this. When life is turning up problems for you, don't immediately go into value judgments about God treating you poorly. Your jigsaw puzzle isn't finished yet. And if you have repented of your sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ, then the picture in your jigsaw puzzle is beautiful, even though at the moment it may look ugly. You just don't know the end yet. And... And then that jigsaw puzzle fits in with many, many more to make up this, this county, this state, this country, this world, the kingdom of God. That picture, when seen in its entirety, is a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. The second takeaway is you sitting here today are in the laboratory of equipping. Jesus is equipping you in life, and it's our mission as a church to equip people in the task of building a full-orbed ministry here at Bay. Just like uh, the life of Jesus, our stuff we want to we want to take you along with all our stuff here at this church, all the things that we do uh, in as steps towards achieving our vision. We have Bible studies, we have small groups, we have prayer groups. We have individual discipling opportunities. I think Rachel is running like 16 small groups or something like that. And uh, Patrick has Bible studies and, and uh, we have Bible studies here at Bay. And these are directed either directly or indirectly. They're, they're all towards the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Every member a minister. The third takeaway is find your purpose. Everyone in this room has a wealth of experience and knowledge, but you may sense that you're adrift. You may sense that there's no place for you to fit. You may sense that you're without purpose in this sea of retirement. Uh, I hope Joe and Ginny Foster are watching you today. I think that was the case with both of them. Joe, Joe came to me one day and he said, John, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about getting a job. I have an interview this afternoon. I said, Joe, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I'm going to be a teller at a bank. He had been corporate counsel for Verizon for 35 years. He had been an FBI uh, agent. And he was talking about being a teller at a bank. I said, Joe. Don't do that. Come to work with me. He said, okay. And he did. But his sense, you see, his sense was that he was adrift. He had no place. And, and for many of you, 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 you've had such productive lives. 
And now you come to this place in your life and you say, well, what am I supposed to be doing here? Where do I, where do I fit? Find your purpose. Everybody here has a purpose. Without, you may sense that you're adrift. Um, and you're not satisfied with the trajectory of your life story. And you don't know why it is. Well, you, you need to find that purpose. And it begins with an epiphany. Finding your purpose begins with an epiphany. And the epiphany is this. I need a purpose. I need fulfillment. The second step is to access your interests and your skills. And we want to help you in that consideration. And then the next thing is to identify potential outlets to use your skills. And then hone or equip your skill set with the tools that you need to fully engage your purpose. Do you feel today a vague sense of drifting? Then you need to find your purpose and find your place. Fourth and final takeaway this morning. Lean into that first purpose of Jesus. Equipping was a secondary value as far as Jesus was concerned. The first was his life, death, and resurrection. And this, if this isn't settled in your heart, where do I stand with God? Where do I stand with heaven? Have I repented of my sins? Have I even recognized my sin and my need for a Savior? If you have not settled that, then today is your day. The Bible says, but to as many as received him, to those who believe on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I implore you to believe on Jesus as the one who did the hard work at the cross to pay the price and to bring about your restoration your redemption, and your reconciliation. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that, that you have indeed a purpose for each one of us and that we are, uh, we are the jigsaw puzzle. And you are fashioning us to have a place in the kingdom, a kingdom that you have built. And so, God, we pray. I pray for that one who has yet to put their faith and trust in you, may even this morning be wrestling with uh, the truth and validity of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. I pray, God, for that one, that they would come to faith in Jesus. Thank you for this time together. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is our strong Savior. Amen. We're going to conclude today, and we're going to sing three stanzas, Oh, How I Love Jesus. Stand with me.
Now would you receive God's benediction, for it is now unto Jesus, who is able to keep you from falling. It is now unto Jesus, who is able to present you before his glorious presence, dear saints, spotless, and with great joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, honor, majesty, and dominion, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.